Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. While you're listening, go to arcpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel for episode 90 of the Rock Art Podcast. We're blessed and honored to have Charles White, who's the director of the Tatchby Museum. He's going to talk about how to do public outreach with heritage values for Native Americans and understand a bit about culture history and a tad about rock art here and there. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Welcome out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, for episode 90. And we are blessed and honored to have Charles White, who is the uh, director of the Tatchby Museum with us today. He's a long-term friend and colleague in this adventure of ours. And I think we'll have a, an interesting repartee and discussion of some of the things we've done together, get to know Charles a bit, and talk about the nature of trying to communicate the importance of Native American heritage and the nature of perhaps the imagery and the religion and cosmology and value system of Native people. Charles, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's really a pleasure and an honor. How long have we known each other, Charles? It seems like it's been forever. Going back, I'm not sure. I think it's probably been at least 14 years. Wow. <laughs> that's that's rather amazing. Now, when did you take the helm of the Tehachapi Museum? And you might 
you might want to share with our listeners where the town of Tehachapi is. Well, Tehachapi is located on the Highway 58 coming out of north, although they consider it to be west, but we're northwest of Lancaster, California. So we're in the Tehachapi Mountains. It's a small range that abuts the Sierras. We're a little mountain town. We have a population. The town itself is only about 11,000, but our little trade area we consider to be about 40,000. That includes some outlying areas. And so we're sort of the center for all of those people, although some people do drive the hour to Lancaster or the uh, 45 minutes to Bakersfield for their shopping and other other needs. But basically, all of our people locally come into the, the little town of Tehachapi. And of course, now we have a Walmart, which some people were for and some people were against, but they seem to be pretty busy. And it gives us an option of a place to shop. The museum itself is located on Green Street, which is right downtown. It's the old uh, Kern County Library building, the Tehachapi branch. It's built in 1932, sort of an Art Deco building, fairly small. And we had a project that was completed about 12 years ago. I had been wanting to do some sort of an exhibit for the Kawaisu, our local Native American tribe, and they actually had never had any place to show any of their artifacts. So fortunately, things came together and we were able to have the city add on the addition to our museum. It about doubled the size, didn't it? Yes, it did. Uh, Actually, if you consider the restrooms and the offices, it's more than double the size of the original museum. Yeah. We we needed some help to finish it off. And even though the city had built the building, we had to finish off the interior. And we were lucky to find a local couple, Jesse and Mark Milano, who have an avid interest in, in Western type things. And I use that term meaning the cattle industry, ranching, and also Native American. And so we were allowed to finish it off in a first-class style, and we, of course, named it the Milano Gallery. And we, we couldn't have done it without the help of Harold Williams, who was one of the local elders, and you yourself, Alan. The two of you had been working on a book called The Handbook of the Kawaiisu, and it was the first large book that was sort of a compendium of of a few articles, but mostly things that were written uh, for the book. And of course, the Williams family allowed us to have full access to their photographs. And so we have photographs going back from the late 1800s up through about the 1930s. And so we were able, well, Alan and Harold were able to pick wonderful photographs for the Handbook of the Kwaisu. And uh, even though it's, it's rich in a written word of their history and culture, it has lots of large photographs. So it's a very enjoyable book. In fact, uh, the first publishing sold out and we were able to find a donor to pay to republish it. And so the second edition, we both Harold Williams and Alan agreed to sign over their rights to us 
So we were able to produce it and we've actually sold, I think we ordered 500 of those the second time and we're down to less than a hundred now. So we're hoping to find funding to republish that. It's been very well received and we still sell them at our museum on Green Street here in Tehachapi at least once a week. You know, we'll have somebody to come in or call about it. So we're still selling those. Um, we were lucky. Harold Williams was custodian of all the baskets that his family had made that that they could identify. So uh, we have an exhibit of the first part of the exhibit had about eight of the Native American baskets. They don't show a lot of wear. They were made by individuals in the Williams family, and we actually have the names of everyone who made those baskets. And later, he allowed us to have the other baskets in the family collection. There were about five more. He said that we handled them and cared for them and insured them and took better care of them than he did. So we were lucky uh, to, to be able to have those to have on display they're a, one of the main points of interest in our exhibit. Unfortunately, Harold passed away a few years ago, but he and his sister were both elders in the tribe and helped us out in many ways. When we were putting the gallery together, as I said, the book, the Kwiasu, Handbook of the Kwiasu was being published, and they allowed us to use photographs that were in the book. And Alan particularly helped write the, the panels, the, the, the archaeological panels and the cultural ones that give information about the Kawaiisu. So, Charles, before we go into the details, give people a background as to how you came to be part of Tehachapi and the museum and the basis of your interest in Native people or all things historical. How's that? Well, the way I got involved, I was an art history major in college. And afterwards, I worked as consultant to museums around the world, mostly in the United States, but some other countries as well. And when I moved to Tehachapi, I retired here when I was 50. And I wasn't ready to just sit and do nothing. So I joined the museum and with my knowledge and expertise, I was able to find funding and to figure out ways to do things because we're a small town and small museums don't, usually don't have much money to do things. And that was the case here. But as we started to do things and improve exhibits and, and do certain events, we got a little more visibility and that drew in a lot more people. It not only built our membership base, because as a small museum, we have no, no funding from any organization or agency. So we have to raise money for special projects. We have to, to look for larger sums and we don't charge admission, but many people make donations and we have a small gift shop. So we've been able to, uh, sort of parlay that into a first-class museum. And I say that not being egotistical because we have people, every time I'm working there as a docent, people say what a wonderful small museum this is. 
And we hear that from a lot of people. So we were we were lucky to have the money and the expertise to completely renovate the original part of the museum as well as we did that at the same time we were adding on the Milano Gallery. And so it has a, a nice uh, flow to it. It still has the feeling of an old building, though, which, uh, you know, we tried to keep. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really got a, a lot of architectural flavor. When did we do the kickoff or the premiere showing, the grand showing, first ever in, on the globe, of Talking Stone? <laughs> when you sold out the um, theater and we uh, sold the DVDs. That was quite a, an amazing sort of cool. Yes, I'm, I'm guessing that was about probably eight or nine years ago. Alan had worked with a Hollywood producer. His name is Paul Goldsmith. And yes, we worked four years together to put together a documentary film that ultimately was aired on PBS and is still available and for sale through Bradshaw and through the auspices of the California Rock Art Foundation. The The key here was we did our, our, our world premiere. That's right. Even though Alan was the, the brains behind that particular production, uh, I don't remember the length. I think it was uh, about 40 minutes long. Uh, of course, so we sold the DVDs at the museum and we show it we have a TV screen where we show it pretty continually and Harold Williams was interviewed and and it as well as Alan and and others. And the producer offered to let us attach be heritage league. And I'm sure it was at the instigation of Alan. He allowed us to do the world premiere. So (laughs) we uh, got one of the local theaters to donate their largest theater seats, 170 and uh, we showed it. The, the The seating was sold out. You somehow sold tickets of some somewhere or other. It was absolutely a sellout crowd. There was standing room only, and it was remarkable. And then when they, uh, after they saw it, we had a, a quick question and answer, and they went and bought the DVDs. <laughs> yes, the museum is only about uh, just over a block away. <laughs> And we invited yeah. everyone down to the museum and we had, this was before Wonderful. the time of COVID. And so we had yeah, it absolutely yeah. packed. You couldn't move in there. There must've been close to 80 people in the museum at any given time. And we had refreshments and wine and I anticipated, oh, we might sell eight or 10. And I think we ended up selling more like 120 copies of oh, it. Yeah. Uh, it was so well done. And People just just loved it. So that was a good example of a public outreach and interpretive sort of platform teaching people about the importance of Native American heritage, cultural values, uh, rock art, all of those different things. The museum all kind of packaged in an interplay that really was a a special win-win, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Uh, we we have found that there's a keen interest in anything to do with Native Americans, especially the local tribe. We had several of the elders would do either lecture or storytelling, and I'm sure 
Alan, many of your listeners are familiar with the Indian stories that were passed down through the generations since there was no written language. It was all handed down uh, orally. And they would tell these stories of, for instance, a bird came and landed on a rock and coyote came, you know, to to greet the bird. So, there, you know, it's, it's sort of to our our current storytelling, it's, it's a little simplistic, but people, people love to hear it. And they're not doing it right now, but there were language classes being held for not only the Native Americans who were here, but there were other local people, and particularly one historian, John Hammond, who is fluent in the language now. The idea was to keep the language alive. And so they would do these programs and maybe the elder would tell the story and then one of his children or grandchildren would would give the English equivalent. And then at other times they would just talk about growing up. Uh, Luther Gerardo, one of the elders, was one of our uh, best friends. He would always be willing to do any sort of lecture or fundraiser that, that we wanted to do. Why don't we hold that thought right now? We'll pick up the story in the next segment. Okay. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome back. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And we have with us today a guest scholar who is the director of the Tatchby Museum and a longtime friend. Well, let's let's go back a bit. Let's jump back and talk a bit about the conceptualization of how we had to sort of develop a theme and a character for that uh, gallery. I think at uh, one point we were trying to figure out, well, should we make it exclusively the Kawaiisu Gallery, or should it be uh, multiple themes? I think we ended up talking about it being the exclusive Kawaiisu Gallery. And it seems to have been uh, paralleled or sort of, you know, put together in a way to be a companion piece with the book. Now, the book was an interdisciplinary project where everybody got involved. 
Lots of Native Americans were involved, both the uh, Kawaii Language and Cultural Center, really any Native American that had an interest in our project. We had meetings regularly there in Tehachapi, and the production took four years, <laughs> four years of research and writing to sort of get it together. The graphic designers were volunteers, and, and they did not charge us to produce the book, which was amazing. And Hammond certainly was, was a big part of it, but uh, really Janice Williams was, was very critical, as was Harold, uh, in terms of being central and being at uh, each and every meeting. One of the highlights for me was when we were able to nominate the entire gang, everybody, for uh, an award in Sacramento, the Governor's Award. It was in uh, 2011, I believe, and we won the uh, Governor's Award for Historic Preservation. And everybody attended and were there to receive those plaques and that recognition award. And I think that uh, meant a lot to everybody. Any thoughts on that, uh, Charles? I think you're right. Of course, for Tehachapi, a project like this is a vast undertaking that normally uh, would be a very expensive undertaking. But as I said, we had the Milanos who kicked in a lot of the money to help with it. And we also had the expertise of Alan as well as Janice and Harold Williams. And we have a local historian, John Hammond, who is very interested in, and very knowledgeable about the Kawaii And so all of their talents came to us at no cost. We, we were just very lucky to be able to do what we did and have such a first-class gallery. We have a murals program in town, historical murals. And one of those murals depicts... Kawaiisu village that was partly imaginary. It was based on historical fact, but in order to get the mountains and the the one lake and uh, other elements all in the same picture, things had to be, there was a little bit of artistic license, but uh, the focus of it was not necessarily the, the, the background, it, it was showing the Native Americans going about their daily tasks. There's a sm small little scene of a man teaching his son how to flint nap to make an, a projectile point. Uh, there are women teaching the, the girls how to weave baskets. There's the actual houses that the Native Americans lived in were called kanhis in their language. Kanhi means home or house. And so there's a depiction of, of those in the mural. And so what we were able to do, the problem sometimes in designing an exhibit like this is that you've got some artifacts, you've got some baskets, you've got pictures of rock art, you, you've got projectile points, and they're rather static and they don't tell much of a story to the average person. So what we did, we took sections, we had someone photograph this large mural and we took sections of it and used those in the background showing the various tasks that the Native Americans were doing, the Kawaiisu. And we sort of created a story of uh, how they process the acorns for their food, which was their main source of food. There's uh, a section on basket weaving. 
and and they're they're interesting things that people on their own can sort of infer the meaning of and at times when we're going to have crowds here we will actually have a docent in that gallery to talk to people and and point out these things and explain to them the way of life of the Kwayasu. And we also, nearby, we have a state park. It's called Tomo Kanhi. Kanhi, of course, means home, as I mentioned. And Tomo means winter. So it was their winter home. And it's uh, probably about six miles, maybe not even that far from uh, downtown. And you can only view the park uh, in the company of a ranger. So on Saturday mornings in the fall and the spring, when the weather's conducive, they're guided tours and they meet at the museum and either myself or one of our other docents who have learned about the Milano Gallery will actually give them a tour of the gallery and point out various things. Uh, for instance, we'll show them the picture of the Kanhi and tell them that when they get to the park, the rangers will show them a ring of rocks because they place rocks around the bottom uh, of this circular house to, to keep the um, animals and vermin out. And so when they are pointed out as uh, what's left of where a Connie would be, in their mind, they can visualize the Connie. And there, there are other examples of, of things that we do like that to just educate them somewhat on the culture so that once they get into the state park, they, they, they can visualize things. This year and, and 2022, the first tour is September 24th. So uh, that's a Saturday. They only can take about 16 people on a tour because otherwise it can damage the uh, environment there. And almost all the tours are sold out. We always have people clamoring for those. What's uh, remarkable about Tehachapi is there is so much history. There's prehistory. There's native ecology. And it's such a, um, I don't know what you call it, a living, breathing, natural uh, area that has a lot to offer in terms of just visually and experiencing a bit of nature, I guess that's the best way to put it. There's uh, a lot of people that appear to be attracted to to Hatchapi because of its its beauty and the uh, the changing seasons, the natural environment, and sort of the uh, the culture of the people. Is this correct, Charles? Yeah, it attracts a lot of Hatchapi attracts a lot of people from more crowded suburban areas. They come to Tehachapi and they're just amazed at the small town atmosphere, how friendly everyone is. And fortunately, so many of those people come to the museum. And it's odd because I have people that come in when I'm working there, always have people who come in and say, well, I've lived here 20 years and I've never been to the museum. And that amazes me because I, I'm a museum person, grew up loving museums and actually worked as a consultant to museums for a while. So for, for people to not realize, you know, what's here, I just find that amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And, and you, you know, I've talked to people that, that work and live in, in Tehachapi and, and they're, it's surprising that they don't know that there's a, 
a state historic park that the Indians still live in Tehachapi and are rather prominent and recognized for a variety of reasons. And there we are. There we are. But for whatever reason, I think over the years, we've been able to do some interesting things together to help promote and publicize and recognize Native people and also to sometimes even repatriate, if you would, interesting objects. Do you remember when we got that basket back from the family? Yes. The area where the uh, state park is is in Sand Canyon, which is kind of a lot of people who live out there are off the grid, although they they do have some electricity uh, out in that area. But there was a family that lived in Tehachapi in the 40s and 50s. The father was a geologist that worked with, at that time, I think it was called Monolith Cement Plant, which is adjacent to Sand Canyon. But they lived in Sand Canyon, and the four uh, children spent their time out digging and looking, and they they dug up a lot of arrowheads and scrapers and things like that. But they also acquired three Native American baskets. The uh, the Kwaisu baskets are somewhat rare because they there was no one in town that encouraged them to make them to sell. So most of the ones they made, they made to use or to, to give as gifts. But uh, there was one store in town and he would trade Indian baskets to the individuals who uh, needed groceries and supplies. But generally, there, there was not a lot of baskets made for trade. So they're, they're rather rare. But this family had three. And uh, now it's been about 12 years ago. They had contacted me about they wanted to return two of the baskets uh, to the museum. So uh, they were coming. The, one son lives in Boston and the daughter lives in Anaheim. And the two of them were coming with baskets. And we arranged for a nice lunch with Harold and his sister. And uh, Alan was there. And they came to present the baskets. And I thought they were presenting them to the museum, but they presented them to Harold. They said, Harold, these are Native American baskets that we're returning. We want to repatriate them. And so they gave them to Harold and for, you know, for his family. And uh, they are among the baskets that we have on display now. So that happens periodically. We have another basket that does belong to the museum that someone uh, repatriated and gave back to us. So we own that one. And actually we have a second one that we were able to buy. A woman who lived in Mojave was uh, moving to Arizona and she was going to sell it once she got there. And we heard about it and we were able to raise the money and buy it. So we, we do have a few of our own, but the Eisenmans, as I said, the, the four children, and unfortunately one or two of them have died now. They've, they've been kind to the museum and given us various things, but they gave us a collection of arrowheads that they had picked up as children. And Alan went through and divided them up into different periods. And it's, it's an important part of our exhibit on archaeology. 
They go back to 6500 BC. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back, gang. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, with segment three on the Rock Art Podcast, episode 990, with our guest scholar, Charles White. Charles, I thought in this final segment, we'd do a bit of philosophy and reflection. What's it like to be at the helm of a small museum? And what's been your favorite, uh, you know, accomplishments, things that you think really hit your stride and made a difference in the community? Well, I think, as you know, I uh, had worked as a consultant to museums before I retired. And in doing that, I had a small little part of uh, major exhibitions because uh, I would work with like the LA County Museum or the uh, Houston Museum of Fine Arts or the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, mostly actual paintings, but some of them were historical, like the Dead Sea Scrolls and things such as that. So I had a small part of it. The thing about working for a small museum is that in my case, it, it was just waiting for someone to kind of come and take control and bring it into a, a new being because it had already been established for about 30 years, but had, you know, not a lot of attention and nobody really who had uh, any museum experience. So I was able to discern which of the artifacts that we had, not necessarily the Native American, because we didn't have many at that point, but just other artifacts concerning agriculture and mining and whatever. And I was able to... uh, decide, well, these are not really important or of the quality, you know, to tell a story. So I was able to, when we were closed for that time, the Milano Gallery was being built uh, and we remodeled the front. Uh, I had a lot of time to go through the exhibits and winnow out things that really didn't belong there. And after we reopened, after the remodel, a lot of people would come in and say, oh, you have so much more now, when in actuality, I had taken out about half of what was there because there would be redundancies and things that were not described. Just as I mentioned earlier, in the Milano Gallery, just objects there without some sort of explanation or interpretive panels uh, don't really mean much. 
So we were able to put things together in a different way to tell a story. Uh, for instance, we have a section on the founding of the city, which uh, even though it was started in 1876 when the railroad came through, it wasn't incorporated until 1909. Wow. So I was able to tell uh, bits and pieces of that history. And also uh, we have a recreation of a uh, blacksmith shop. And there were lots of artifacts that just naturally fit in there. And we had someone about three years ago offer us a painting that had been in a meat market here back in the 1940s. <laughs> and it's a picture of a huge cow with a wide frame. And all around are burned into the wood are brands from some of the local ranches. So, wow. you know, all of that helps to tell a story. And that's what we've, what I've strived to do with with our permanent exhibits is to give people a chance to decide uh, decipher for themselves, you know, the history of Tehachapi. What I'm hearing is that what you did was to take the museum and begin to focus in on the important objects that can be showcased, and then transmit a story, a compelling story, an interesting story so that people will learn something and be educated and also entertained. That's, that's true. We're, we're such a small museum that we can't devote a lot of space to, to one topic. And there are certain things that I would like to be able to showcase. Like we have nothing at all on the Hispanics that have, they were here from the beginning that helped to settle Tehachapi and also the Basque people. We do have across the street from the museum an old house that was moved to the site about 1900 from a site where this man thought the railroad would be coming through. And when it didn't come through, uh, everybody wanted to be here in Tehachapi. So uh, some of the buildings were moved into town and one of the old houses is right across the street from the museum and we've restored it to 1900 to 1930. It's got a beautiful garden, which we have just in the past three years been trying to, to renovate and replant. And so there, there's lots of ongoing things that all fit together to, to tell part of the story of Tehachapi. And most of our large railroad objects are now in a railroad museum, which is about three blocks away. And I actually uh, designed that museum and also arranged it in, in such a way that it, it tells a comprehensive story. And it, it's, it's actually more popular than our museum, partly because we have the historic Tehachapi Loop here, engineering marvel that gets the trains over the hill. It was too steep for the steam engines. So there's a lot of uh, railroad buffs that come here, people that have moved here that live down near the loop just so they have a view of the trains at all times. So it, it's been gratifying to me to put this all together. And I, I've learned a lot about the history. I, I knew, really knew very little of the railroad history and actually very little of the uh, Native American history, but just from reading and studying and talking to Alan and the elders, I, I've learned quite a bit. 
I think what's been interesting to me is, is like I've said before, when I spent the four years with Harold and Janice, I learned more about Native culture, about Native American culture, Indigenous culture, you know, the uh, Native people that lived in the Tehachapis and in the Western Mojave Desert. I had been studying them for 40 years. <laughs> and I learned more in four years than I did in 40 years. I learned uh, stories. I learned uh, language. I learned the dictionary and ethnogeography. I, we wrote a whole section on ethnogeography. Oh, my word. Uh, we, have, we had probably over 100 different locations that we had native names for the various places that were known by the native people and and they had significance in their language and they had stories that were told and associations, et cetera, et cetera. And I even spent time with a graphic designer and we put together a, an enormous map that sits on your wall to this day that had never existed before. It tried to show the major villages and the areas that the quote, native people had uh, trafficked. So it became a bit of a centerpiece for uh, others to understand how widely the Kawaiisu traversed, that there was a desert group and a mountain group. And in fact, they were heavily influenced by the desert culture in the Great Basin. They spoke a language that was kindred to the entire desert West. So on and on. It, it's, it's an interesting journey, isn't it? Yeah, I think you're right. So much of my knowledge came from talking to people uh, such as the elders and yourself. And of course, John Hammond, our local historian who has made his life's work, knowing everything there is about Tehachapi, including the Kawaiisu. And they, they were really happy and proud and supportive of what we did. When we had our grand opening, we had set up chairs for the tribal members and we were surprised that there were about 60 who came. Wow. They're so assimilated and intermarried. Most of them are, you know, not as interested in keeping up their history as others are, but they were really pleased that we did something like this for them. And so it's been good for them and it's been good for us because I would say, um, Half the people who come into our museum are very interested in the Kawaisu and they spend a lot of time there in the Mamalo Gallery. Well, it's interesting. When I worked with John Hammond and I worked with Harold Williams, the one thing that really spurred me on for the four years we did our work together was it just seemed that anthropologists, archaeologists, the general public, and just the people in general did not realize that there there was a story here. The native people were here. They were here for hundreds and thousands of years. And they continue to be here to this very day. <laughs> and there's there's a tremendous amount known about them. And that, that was uh, something that, that urged me because when I uh, read many of these uh, reports, compliance reports that had to do with cultural resources management and dealing with various discoveries of archaeological materials or not, they would put snapshots in and say, there's nothing known about the Kawaisu. <laughs> and I would mm. say, well, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's uh, an accurate appraisal. 
And even their most prominent anthropologist who's associated with them said that their culture was dead and that they had become extinct. And that's not true either. Just because Native people don't live in uh, connies or don't harvest or don't hunt as much or harvest Native plants as much as they did in the past, or even if they don't speak the language as they did in the past, they still know that they're Indians, they know they're Native Americans, they, they know their heritage, they know their kinship, they know who's related to whom, and they have a tremendous pride and connection with the land. And that's something that one never loses. Yes, and unfortunately, they don't have tribal recognition. We've worked with uh, some of the elders Apparently, it's very expensive to try to get your tribal recognition because the attorneys charge so much to to if you can get your foot in the door. So we've helped them on a very small basis. Uh, when they've had made trips to Washington, we've helped them with travel expenses and that sort of thing. But they, they don't have their tribal recognition yet. And most of the tribes, most of the tribelets and and groups throughout California do not have federal recognition. Very few, contrary to popular opinion, are are not casinoed and not federally recognized. And it's a political situation as much as a financial situation. And the government in general does not want to see more tribes federally recognized because that opens it up to more, you know, the casinos and gambling and other things along those lines. But, But so it's It's an interesting time, and I just mentioned this in passing, but there is a group of the Kauai Sioux that were on the Tohon Ranch that have been approved for a casino, and it's going to go in here in the next six months to a year. It'll be there on Highway 5, and I bet it's going to be a tremendously successful one because that's one of the most busiest arteries in all of California. So just an interesting sidebar. Yes. And with that, I I think we should... You can sign off, Charles, and, and, and give us some, you know, reflections to think about vis-a-vis this uh, dialogue. Well, I, I'm very proud of all of the projects that we've done, including the Araya House. Uh, we've just completed a DVD on the Tehachapi earthquake of 1952. Uh, this is the 70th anniversary, and we were able to produce a really wonderful 20-minute video We have the original cemetery, the old Pioneer Cemetery, that's under our uh, care. We try to keep it cleaned up. There are not a lot of uh, headstones there, but we do have some drawings of where people are buried. You know, we we do scholarship every year to a high school student, hopefully one that's going to go into the study of history. We, We do various programs throughout the year. In fact, in October, we're showing a silent film at one of the local theaters. It was the first silent film filmed in Tehachapi, and I believe it was 1915, around that time period. And we know we have a lot of the old photographs of Tehachapi from that time, and the buildings are identifiable in the silent film. So we're looking forward to that. It just continues. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of things to interpret. There's a community that cares about its natural and cultural history, and it's a it's a fine sort of mix, a medley, and a wondrous relationship that can be 
born from those people that live in Tehachapi or that are interested in learning more about it. So uh, yes, it with is. that, I think we should sign off and tell, tell uh, all of our listeners, if you, if you ever get uh, to Tehachapi, look up the museum and, and go, go in and check it out. I think you'll be pleased. Well, thank you, Alan, for this opportunity. It's a it's a blessing, Charles. It's it's been a long time in coming, and I'm so happy to have been an you know platform to share some of your insights. See you later, gang. See you in the flip flop. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.